Hello, and welcome to the latest RevDam podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Wilkinson, Associate Professor of Law at the London School of Economics, who has recently published Authoritarian Liberalism and the Transformation of Modern Europe with Oxford University Press. The topic of our conversation will be the implications of this concept of authoritarian liberalism for the rule of law, democracy and constitutionalism in Europe today. Thank you very much for joining us, Mike. Thanks very much for the invitation. This book is the result of research that you have conducted during a tumultuous start to the 21st century, which has seen economic, political and now public health upheaval. Against this background, what motivated you personally and intellectually to develop this innovative argument as to how authoritarian liberalism has transformed modern Europe? Thanks. So I, I explain in the preface the, the journey that took me from A to B, and I think it's quite a useful thing just to map out. Um, so I started to consider the concept of authoritarian liberalism at the height of the Euro crisis uh, around 2012-2013, where there were quite dramatic interventions into the political life of the member states. And in an increasingly, what occurred to me was an authoritarian manner. So the whole sort of premise of European integration was based on this idea of a consensus. It was a consensual type of politics. Mm -hmm. In many accounts, a permissive rather than an active consensus, but something consensual nevertheless. What was transpiring in this period, however, was um, looking less and less uh, consensual uh, more and more authoritarian in terms of the types of intervention um, that were uh, uh, being imposed or offered. Um, and in conjunction, however, with a project that's ostensibly based on economic liberalism. And this, um, as your, I think, next question <laughs> will allude to, appears something of a, of a jarring concept, if not an, an oxymoron. Um, because it Particularly in the, in the Cold War setting, liberalism is paired with democracy and authoritarianism is something other, something perhaps associated with the Soviet Union or China or something outside the European context. So it is a, a jarring uh, uh, concept at first. But then I soon discovered that it was a concept that actually had quite a long history in the context of 20th century democracy. And I looked at the works of scholars like Renato Christie, uh, who'd written a book on authoritarian liberalism and Carl Schmitt in the late 90s, and the work of Kanishka Jayasuriya, a Southeast Asian scholar who had identified order liberalism as a kind of authoritarian version of liberalism long before uh, order liberalism was being discussed in, uh, in, in European context. Yes. Um, so I got this link between authoritarian liberalism as it was occurring in the Euro crisis and authoritarian liberal liberalism as it had appeared in the interwar conjuncture. I mentioned Carl Schmitt, um, but authoritarian liberalism was a label coined by Hermann Heller, a German uh, social democrat and constitutional theorist who used the term authoritarian liberalism pejoratively to critique uh, uh, Schmitt and the cabinets in the early, uh, sorry, the period of late Weimar um, in the early 30s that Schmidt was um, advising. I then had the, the link, there were, there were numerous parallels between what was going on in the Euro crisis and the interwar period, economic parallels, political parallels, of course also significant uh, differences, but what I didn't have was the trajectory 
from from then to now, if you like. And I wanted to fill that out. I didn't mm. want to simply um, um, identify some parallels and think about, for example, uh, the norm versus exception analogy, um, but consider how we got from the interwar period through to the present day. And then, of course, it became a very ambitious project because what I needed to do um, was to dig deep in terms of the post-war resettlement and the post-Maastricht resettlement. And that forms the four um, parts of the book. Part one is interwar, part two is uh, post-war, part three is Maastricht, and part four is Eurocrisis. And think about the transformation in each of those um, four uh, periods. And, and so the book took seven or eight years rather than three or four years uh, to try and really uncover those constitutional transformations across time. Yeah, it's, it's an admirably broad ambit that you investigate and I think it does allow the reader to see these connections that perhaps they wouldn't draw upon instinctively. And you mentioned in your answer there about how authoritarian liberalism could sound like an oxymoron and maybe particularly to our listeners who may understand liberal democracy as an indivisible concept or two indivisible concepts. So how significant is it that the term refers to an economic liberalism? And is it the case that this economic liberalism operates in an authoritative manner without the hallmarks of political liberty? Thanks. Okay, so this is a, a question which could go in different directions. We can think about the kind of conceptual normative case for liberal democracy, which is not what I'm trying to reject here. Sure. I'm going to unpack the question a little bit and start by saying that I, I don't think they are indivisible mm -hmm. concepts. They are uh, related concepts. They come from, however, different traditions, yeah. um, covering vastly different time spans. We think of democracy as emerging um, from ancient Athens, um, we think of the rule of law or liberalism, we'll come on to the rule of law actually in a moment, so let's stick with liberalism for the time being, as a much more modern concept. Yes. Um, they involve different thinkers, different writers, different practices, so I don't think they are indivisible. Now you could of course make a normative argument for their combination, um, and even then we would have um, democratic scholars who were sort of so sceptical of certain aspects of liberalism, and even liberal scholars who are sceptical of certain aspects of liberalism. We think sure. about someone like Jeremy Waldron or, mm -hmm. or Julius Schlar. Um, and I'm dealing in the book, not with a normative or conceptual uh, unpacking, but in their material historical development. So how do these concepts appear on the scene? It's in that sense, to, to some extent inspired by the tradition of phenomenology. So we're thinking about these as phenomena rather than as pure uh, concepts. And that also means that we're interested in the grey areas yes. in between rather than um, uh, 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 consent versus coercion, for example, but thinking about uh, issues like um, persuasion, hegemony, ideology. Now, the question, I think, does point to something important, which is that even if we adopt that sort of more historical, contextual account, the pairing of those concepts have been, has been advanced mm -hmm. in particular periods, and perhaps, let's say, especially the um, Cold War period. And I've already mentioned this idea of the opposition yeah. to Soviet authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. 
Um, now, even if we take this post-war period, and this this is one that I think is the important point of the book, also one that is con- contested. Even if we look at that period, it's a, a low-intensity democracy that develops. Um, it wasn't a vibrant democracy. It was a, to use um, Jan Werner Muller's expression, a constrained democracy that uh, develops after the Second World War, uh, reducing the range of, of voices, both through formal means, thinking about party bans, counter-majoritarian institutions, but also informally. And an important part of the project is to show how what is often referred to as liberal democracy is based on a kind of reduced uh, uh, form of democracy sure. in terms of the decline of parliamentar- parliamentarism, the decline of class struggle, uh, de-radicalization of politics, which is often associated with the neoliberal period, but mm-hmm. I want to say actually is a, a, a longer a phenomenon. Uh, and in fact, uh, we'd have to think about Christian democracy and the dominance of that in the post-war era, Kierkeimer's analysis of the rise of the catch-all party in the 1960s and so on. So it's, in, in terms of, if I'm going to offer a definition, the way I approach it is the combination of political authoritarianism with economic liberalism. And just to, to uh, perhaps address a part of the question um, about the extent to which this would apply to a kind of political liberalism, yes. um, um, that's, that's, that's a good question. So you could, although I don't, um, make a case for authoritarian liberalism to have a broader uh, connotation in terms of thinking about the way uh, there are certain um, restrictions, for example, on on freedom of expression. Sure. But I'm I'm in the book primarily associate uh, primarily um, uh, uh, addressing economic liberalism mm-hmm. and the authoritarian uh, uh, pairing uh, of that. Um, you contrast in the book the what you call passive authoritarian liberalism of the EU, at least up until the Euro crisis with the purer form of authoritarianism in Weimar Germany before Hitler came to power. Do you think that using the term authoritarian, which you described in your last answer, your reasons behind that, do you think that's appropriate in relation to the EU when ostensibly there were predicates of democracy, even if it were lower intensity, as you say, such as fair and free elections? Or do you believe it is necessary to use such strong terminology to draw attention to the socioeconomic repression that you claim just stated in this period. Thanks. Okay, there's quite a lot there. <laughs> I'm going to start with um, the point about authoritarianism, the sort of harsher form of authoritarianism yes. in late Weimar, which is really important because one of the um, maybe incidental messages of the book is to um, critique the sort of standard narrative of democratic excess leading to fascism yeah, and national sure. socialism. In fact, the, the Nazi seizure of power um, came after the suppression of representative democracy, the bypassing mm-hmm. of the parliament, as well, of course, as um, street violence, intimidation. So it wasn't the, the, uh, uh, the case of a, of, a, of a straightforward democratic transition. And that's important, of course, because this whole story that we're often told in the post-war period about democracy leading to uh, fascism and therefore needing to be constrained yes. has to be uh, problematized. Mm-hmm. It's far from far from straightforward. So that is an important point uh, that I make in the book. Free and fair elections are absolutely uh, crucial, um, uh, but we must again 
problematize what that means in practice. There must be some genuine choice, some genuine capacity uh, for parties once in office to make a difference. And one of the things I will address in the book are the limits that are imposed, partly structural and partly through the, the limits to the constitutional imagination. Mm-hmm. There are limits first in the range of options, and I've already mentioned this in relation to the, um, uh, the, the, the rise of uh, uh, the catch-all party, uh, which later becomes the sort of state party uh, cartel, the reduced um, uh, range of political alternatives, uh, in part by de-radicalization from the left itself. Sure. Um, but also, in terms of the structural uh, limits that are imposed once uh, a party or if a party um, reached power. And this is where the uh, constitutional limits become really significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, free and fair elections are essential, but we have to think about what um, uh, 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 what limits are, are, are imposed through the constitutional design once a party gets into power. So we have, of course, a whole discussion here about counter-majoritarian institutions, the mm-hmm. turn to technocracy, the turn to constitutional courts, we would look at, want to look at the other institutions of the state that may um, frustrate certain options being put on the table, and of course the interstate system itself, and this is where uh, the project of European integration um, comes in, in part as an additional um, feature of the constraints that are imposed on domestic um, um, uh, politics. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, has been outlined by others. Um, again, m- often pointing at the, uh, the, the Maastricht period as, as transformative. So if we take, for example, the work of Fritz Scharpf or Agustin Menendez, um, uh, Menendez in a recent paper talks about how the trio of sound money, economic freedom and free competition within the EU context combine to affirm private property as, in his in his words, the sovereign value of European law, constraining the possibilities in terms of political economy that are available at domestic level. And again, I think that's a really important uh, a point, and I develop it in the book, but I think that it's um, uh, many of its elements can be found latent uh, uh, from, from the beginning of the post-war uh, resettlement. Now, the term passive mm. is important at this stage because I want to convey that this was at least in part, a kind of voluntaristic acceptance of elite-led projects. This is often referred to as the permissive consensus. But then I want to ask a second question, which is why was that the case? Why was there this certain uh, retreat uh, uh, of the populations um, away from the political sphere, a certain um, quietism Mm. on the part of the working class, which Hannah Arendt neatly recounts in her own reports on West Germany in the the 1950s. And here, again, I only allude to this in the book, but there are various um, um, theorists, often associated with Frankfurt School, who identified in this period a certain retreat from the public sphere and into consumerism, think about um, uh, one-dimensional man, uh, the fear of freedom, and that this was in part, in other words, uh, uh, an escape that was voluntarily um, um, uh, uh, undertaken and and that brings me I think to the to the last part of the question um, which is about the whether authoritarianism 
um, is directed or intended to draw attention to the socio-economic yes. uh, uh, repression. And uh, the, the, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> because I do want to maintain authoritarianism as a resolutely political okay. yes. phenomenon um, and not merely one about socio-economic repression. Of course, the two are tied together. Yes. Um, politics and economics are inextricably tied together, but they're not reducible to one or one or one or the other. And indeed, one of, one of the uh, I think the, the the threads running through the book is this a, a rejection of economism, right. which does affect a certain um, uh, part of the kind of left critical theory. Um, uh, uh, this sort of abdicate, abdication of the of, of the political, um, which again. I identified in the interwar period in terms of the uh, the, the SDP's uh, po- uh, policy of toleration towards the um, authoritarian liberal uh, cabinet. So authoritarianism is political, of course it, it is related to socio-economic phenomenon, but it must retain that aspect of the autonomy of the political, if, yes. you, if you want to use that, uh, that terminology. And that theme you've discussed there of the structural constraints and constitutional constraints imposed on domestic politics, I think probably brings us nicely onto the rule of law. And my question for you was whether you believe the rule of law as a concept is compatible with or opposed to authoritarian liberalism. Is there any way that the rule of law can constrain the phenomenon? Or does the rule of law actually serve the goals of authoritarian liberalism? through providing a bulwark of structural constraints against transformations that may become possible through the exercise of democracy? Okay, so um, I think first of all, I would want to say that we need to be very careful about using this concept of the rule of law. Sure. Um, we need um, much more nuance than is often uh, applied. Again, like like liberalism and democracy, this is a highly contested mm-hmm. uh, concept. Uh, contested not only by its critics, but also by its um, adherents. Uh, so there are a variety of accounts of the rule of law. We can distinguish between rule of law and rule by law. We can think, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, even within the, the liberal tradition of critics of a certain moralistic way of thinking about the rule of law, if we think about someone like Joseph Raz or Herbert Hart uh, in the uh, Anglo-American um, uh, tradition of jurisprudence who posed certain sceptical uh, questions to uh, uh, adherence to the rule of law. Um, Judith Schlar, uh, a political liberal who was also um, wary about the ideological connotations of the rule of law, the sense that it could be separated from politics. So the first thing I want to say is that um, um, we have to be careful when we're talking about the rule of law to, to, to be uh, clear of the various, um, 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 not only the various traditions of the rule of law, but also the very various traditions of rule of law scepticism, yeah. which cover the range of um, uh, political positions. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to just take the, the, the question um, about whether the rule of law is compatible with authoritarian liberalism is certainly compatible with the passive or softer variant that I describe in uh, relation to the um, post-war settlement. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what's interesting about that uh, uh, period 
is the turn to lawyers, to courts. We have the uh, phenomenon of integration through law. We know of the significance of the European Court of Justice in uh, promoting a constitutionalization of the treaties. Increasingly, historians are looking at the uh, activism of lawyers in that era as taking on the mantle of uh, uh, constitution builders. Yes. Um, so in terms of the soft authoritarianism, where we have a kind of depoliticization, de-democratization of um, what are political issues, mm -hmm. then the turn to law is, is entirely compatible. Indeed, it is an aspect of yes. uh, a certain uh, form of authoritarian uh, uh, liberalism, of course, which leads to what some have described as a juristocracy in more recent decades. Is it compatible with the harsher variant or the more active variant of authoritarian liberalism that we th saw through the Euro crisis or interwar period? That's a more complex mm -hmm. question, and to some extent yes, and to some extent no. So, we, of course, to to refer to my uh, kind of caveat, it depends what we mean um, by the rule of law. But if we think about, for example, the variety of challenges in the Euro crisis to the um, um, emergency measures, um, to the interventions by the European Central Bank. Um, there were a number of cases in which it looked like the, the uh, ECJ was effectively rubber stamping the accrual of powers by um, uh, executive uh, or, or let's say non democratically representative institutions. So we saw this, for example, in their imaginative uh, ruling um, in the Pringle case on the European stability mechanism, in their rulings on uh, in, in the OMT case, in the Vice case, um, which on some accounts rubber-stamped um, activities of the ECB which went beyond mm -hmm. its original mandate. If we think about those aspects of authoritarian liberalism, they were clearly, let's say, dubious from a rule of law perspective. And they were challenged quite seriously by the German Constitutional Court and by other domestic constitutional courts, which led to this series of um, um, conflicts between uh, courts, domestic courts and the European Court of Justice. In the end, it didn't amount, I think, to a great deal, but it showed that there is a is if you like a uh, an important space there for courts to question or to to put into question the exercise of executive powers yes. can they be justified and so they force a certain attempt at justification which of course then depends upon the credibility of the answers given um, so I would say that in a, in a harsh form of authoritarian liberalism, the rule of law can provide something of a bulwark against a completely arbitrary solution, which isn't to say, of course, that when we're thinking about courts, do they tend to um, um, uh, confirm the exercise of powers? Yes, they do, but there are moments when judicial conflict also is able to shine a light mm. on um, um, uh, various um, dubious exercises of power in accordance with the pre-established rules. Yes. Well, continuing on the theme of 
judicial conflict and the executive and judicial balance, you discuss in the conclusion the emergence of what you call authoritarian populism in the last decade that's emerged in, in Poland and Hungary notably. And you claim that this new phenomenon is materially compatible with the continuation of the post-World War II settlements, even if perhaps not rhetorically compatible. How would you say that authoritarian liberalism helped us to, well, led to a so-called rule of law crisis? Okay, so I'm going to start with the, the first point, which I think is, is right, that um, there is a compatibility mm -hmm. between authoritarian liberalism and what I call authoritarian populism, or there that I'm following other authors have used that, that label. There is no um, rupture from the existing uh, dominant paradigm. Um, of course, there are the practical difficulties of expulsion in the case of mm -hmm. EU membership and exit itself. Um, so there are, there are certain elements of the system which uh, tend to reinforce a certain status quo. Um, and in fact, on the contrary, I began to, to, to think that these phenomena were mutually um, intertwined. Mm. Yes, there is some uh, rhetorical <laughs> antagonism, but also emulation mm. uh, from one to the other. If we think, for example, about the discourse of a Christian Europe associated yeah. with Orban that has um, uh, precedence in the, the European context, the turn to a certain populist rhetoric among European elites themselves. When mm. we look, for example, at the idea of um, von der Leyen's defence of a European way of life. Now, um, very recently, Michel Barnier, so beloved of British Remainers, <laughs> arguing in, in the context of his push for um, uh, influence in the, in the French domestic context, arguing for more sovereignty, control mm. of borders, exactly the kind of rhetoric that we had um, in the context of yes. the Brexit debate. Now, of course, we have to look beyond rhetoric, although rhetoric is important in a political context. But if we, for example, consider the, uh, the aspect of borders, uh, this isn't only ret rhetorical. We look at the thousands who have perished in their attempt to reach Europe. Mm. Um, so I see the two as involved in this kind of tango of antagonism, but in a, a, a mutual embrace. <laughs> um, now, having said that, it's not a straightforward causal relationship. So I wouldn't want to say that authoritarian liberalism straightforwardly led to a so-called rule of law crisis, but there are significant um, um, conditions which authoritarian liberalism laid which um, would have been conducive to the rise of authoritarian populism. To understand that, however, we need to go um, back uh, to the Maastricht period itself for the explanations, both in terms of understanding um, the rise of, of populism more generally, so in the context of Western Europe, and this mm. is an important point that I make in the book, that the rise of uh, populism far predates the, the, the current conjuncture and the French context here is very interesting because yeah. the rise of the Front National can be traced to the early 1990s. The Maastricht uh, Treaty referendum, the, the so-called Petit Oui, uh, when the French voted 51% to 49% in favour of the Maastricht Treaty, already saw the beginnings of this gap growing uh, between the elites 
and the people to adopt the, the populist rhetoric. <laughs> um, but that was identified by French philosophers at the time. So it was interesting, for example, to note that Marcel Gaucher was already identifying um, this, this wall, as he called it, emerging between the elites and the people, in part as a result of the collapse of the French Communist Party, which led um, um, uh, at least a, a part of the working class to look elsewhere, but also, as I mentioned earlier, at, as a result of the convergence of centre-left and centre-right parties around a, a centrist economic paradigm. So the rise of populism in, uh, in, in Western Europe has to be understood in the context of the a collapse, if you like, of social democracy, third way mm -hmm. neoliberalism, um, uh, and uh, what was later described as the pasokification of the centre-left with the collapse of socialist parties. In terms of the Central and Eastern European countries, Maastricht again is crucial because in that era of um, uh, accession, um, what was notable in terms of political economy was this swift and fairly brutal transition to market economies yes. from previously planned um, uh, economies. Uh, and the um, so-called shock doctrine, as it's often referred to, um, in, in, in terms of this very uh, swift and, and, and in many ways brutal um, um, transformation to neoliberal economies in the context, of course, of the globalization of capital and the increasing um, uh, spread of private investment. Uh, uh, so in that sense, if we want to understand the rise of authoritarian populism, then it is important to understand the precursor um, uh, uh, to that phenomenon. Um, and indeed, the in, in addition to the um, uh, swift transition to neoliberalism was the relatively little attention given to democratization yes. in those contexts, uh, which, which in a sense is no surprise given that it was already a weakened or minimal form of democracy in the West. Mm. Again, there are other factors involved here. I wouldn't want to reduce it entirely to that. So, for example, in um, uh, the recent book by Krastev and Holmes, The Light That Failed, they note that liberalism in this period became more, in their terms, hegemonic, meaning, I think, more coercive, less, less pluralistic. Um, uh, and from a, from a more historical perspective, we shouldn't be surprised, certainly uh, Karl Polanyi wouldn't have been surprised, that after this uh, period of commodification, marketization, we would have, um, in his terms, a second movement or a backlash, which sought to um, um, uh, react to that increased inequality. Um, and in the context of a lack of democracy, democracy building, it's not surprised that that second movement is undertaken through uh, a, a more authoritarian uh, manner. You seem to um, refrain from attempts in the conclusion to offer solutions or, or recommendations to address the problem of authoritarian liberalism, which I think is probably an admirable quality because it can really reduce an, an analysis to just boil it down to a few recommendations. However, you do argue that the phenomenon was sustained by the disappearance of the practice and discourse of constituent power. 
So could the re-establishment of what you call the power to establish a new constitutional order combat authoritarian liberalism? And how do you think constituent power could be resuscitated and what would it look like in the 2020s? Thanks. Yeah, so I guess what we, what we don't need is more lawyers offering solutions to political <laughs> problems. Um, but yeah, um, so you're right that implicit in the book are some normative arguments. Sure. Um, making them more explicit would be a different kind of exercise, but mm. uh, one that I may, uh, well, try to undertake. <laughs> um, and you picked out an important one which revolves around this idea of the constituent power. Um, this is an interesting concept because it has such a global resonance. We think, for example, currently about the uh, constituent process in Chile, yes. um, which has excited a lot of commentary and, and political um, action. Now, in the context of my own book, it struck me that in the post-war constitutional settlement, or at least, again, this doesn't happen overnight, this is a gradual process, but there's a kind of displacement of the concept of constituent power, M perhaps most evident in the, in the German case, particularly thinking about German reunification, which um, occurred said, under the radar of any uh, big constitutional debate about yes. the constituent power. Um, and certainly if we think about the way constituent power was associated in the 19th and early 20th centuries with a kind of revolutionary um, uh, moment, that uh, aspect has largely been set aside. And this is a long story which has a lot to do with the um, um, failures, if you like, of Western Marxism, the turn away uh, from uh, revolutionary ambitions um, by um, um, left parties um, and of course in terms of the dominance in in terms of critical theory of a figure like Jürgen Habermas mm. who in, in the uh, sort of end of history period r renounces any possibility of a revolutionary break from capitalism we get this kind of subduing of the idea of constituent power and certainly any relationship between the idea of constituent power and revolution itself. Mm. Now, undergirding this um, transformation in the uh, the way the concept is used, it's a kind of a migration of the idea of constituent power away from ideas of the people, of popular sovereignty, of class struggle, um, into a different, uh, if you like, into the corridors of constitutional court, into the language of rights. Mm -hmm. And we might say, well, this is the transformation of the concept but I think in in some ways it is also the death of the concept now could this idea be re-established yes um, but I think I want to be clear about the obstacles that are in the way uh, to that um, and there are both um, formal structural constraints thinking about it at the European level and I think this is often underestimated the degree to which the Lisbon Treaty decision of the German Constitutional Court really imposes some serious constraints mm -hmm. on constitution making, on upscaling um, um, the um, uh, development of a democracy or constitutionalism um, beyond the state in, and the entrenchment of its own constitutional identity. Mm. But there are also um, 
informal uh, constraints. And here I would point to the difficulty of establishing a bottom-up process of democratization across borders, the absence of political channels, um, public sphere, um, transnational um, organizations. And this requires concrete analysis, not in order to sort of be um, simply realistic and not optimistic, but in the sense because we underestimate the potential for change um, precisely if we are, you know, if we're serious about realizing change, we have to identify the route through which um, uh, uh, change can most uh, likely occur. And that's why in the book, the, particularly in the last part, the failure of Syriza is really placed at the heart of the analysis. Um, um, the, uh, the, the, the failure to offer a break from the existing um, um, system, the failure to mobilize uh, what at the time was a quite a, a large degree of solidarity with, uh, with their cause. Um, and so I want to be clear about the obstacles, be clear about the failures, mm -hmm. in order to think about how in the future um, things might uh, develop differently. And for our final question, I thought we might take a slightly more philosophical turn. And I think it is related to the informal obstacles you were discussing there with constituent power and perhaps what can be described as the dangers of, of revolution. And so the question is whether, you, do you believe authoritarian liberalism has been successful because there's a part of human nature which will always choose physical security and private stability over autonomy and control in the public sphere, for example, through exercising constituent power? And in very simplistic terms, if presented with a dichotomy, do human beings choose the rule of law instead of democracy? This is a, a really good question on which to end. Um, and by good, I mean difficult. <laughs> um, so the, the first thing to say uh, is that I would avoid, as you yourself called it, this sort of simplistic yes. uh, or crude dichotomy in terms of being offered a choice of alternatives when, it, when it's far from clear that it is one or the other. Yeah. Um, now, I said, of course, that the interesting, one of the interesting aspects of the rule of law and democracy is in their tension, um, but it can be a productive tension. Mm. It, it, there is an interplay and a mutual dependence. Um, the first part of your question is really uh, challenging. Um, this notion that there is some uh, sort of tendency to choose physical security and private stability over autonomy and, and public uh, control. I I wouldn't put it in terms of human nature, no. but um, <laughs> yes, material issues are very significant mm. and undeniably so. As um, Brecht famously said, first comes bread and then morals. <laughs> um, of course, that's posing it in its most stark form. Yes. But one thread in the book, and I mentioned this earlier, but perhaps it's a nice um, place to, to finish on. Mm. And again, it's rather implicit in the book, but it's the rejection of a turn to crude economistic answers to what are deeply political questions uh, and which can um, result in this tendency to turn away from political struggle. And I've long had debates uh, about this, partly debates with myself <laughs> as well as with others, my two favourite philosophers are Marx and Arendt who kind of capture both, <laughs> both um, um, aspects of the, the dichotomy uh, to caricature them. Um, and I'm always tempted to resolve this in favour of Marx, but with a close eye 
to the material conditions for the autonomy of the political, if that makes sense. Um, so the two are combined, and we we want to um, avoid uh, reduc reduc reductivism, <laughs> reductionism. Um, and in order to do that, I think it's helpful to add to, to Marx and Arendt um, philosophers in the radical democratic tradition. Um, we're important here in the sense of stressing the human capacity uh, for imagination uh, and creativity. Mm. Um, uh, and that's probably uh, a good place at which to end. Absolutely, yeah. It's a much more optimistic note than the idea of a, a cruel opposition between democracy and the rule of law. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Mike, and especially for joining us on your birthday. <laughs> yeah, this was a, a good gift. And um, we'd like to encourage our listeners to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook to continue these discussions in the future. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.